from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. Francis is out today. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. Two new ships are part of the Navy fleet tonight. The first stealth destroyer in the Navy fleet is the USS Zumwalt. The Navy will eventually take delivery of two more of the ships. ships. Defense News reports the other ship is the Arleigh Burke-class destroyer, the USS Delbert Black. The hospital ship, the USNS Comfort, is on its way back to port after wrapping up its mission off the coast of New York. The ship treated 182 patients during its three-and-a-half-week mission. USNI News reports the Comfort will most likely return to Virginia to prepare for another possible assignment. The Navy has fired the commanding officer of the school that develops technical training for its aviators. Rear Admiral Kyle Kozad, the head of Naval Education and Training Command, relieved the school's CO, Captain Nate Schneider, after he lost confidence in Schneider's ability to lead. Military.com reports Kozad hasn't said publicly what caused his loss of confidence. The government plans to spend trillions to respond to the coronavirus crisis, and the impacts could be felt in budgets for years to come. Here with some suggestions for making defense dollars go further, Thomas Mankin is president and chief executive officer of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. Thanks for joining me. It's wonderful to be with you. How are you assessing uh, the potential impact of, of the crisis on future defense budgets? Well, I think we could be entering some pretty challenging times for, for defense, uh, both, as you just mentioned, because of the substantial costs of the, of the coronavirus stimulus, but also because of the, the downturn of the U.S. economy that we're already starting to see because of the pandemic. You list some ways, you, you wrote a, a new article, and you list some ways that you think um, DOD could, could make those dollars go further. What are some of the key uh, suggestions? Well, I think overall, we need to balance uh, the need to keep us strong with the need to uh, help the U.S. economy. So I think first and foremost, we need to keep existing production lines going. We need to keep Americans employed, working, and uh, there's a pressing need to, to modernize uh, the U.S. military, because in many ways, we're, we're still living off of the Reagan-era defense buildup of the 1980s. Uh, at the same time, we also need to stock up. Uh, it's a good opportunity now for the Defense Department to increase its stockpile of things like munitions, where it's clear that we haven't purchased enough uh, of the types of munitions that we would need in a future contingency. So no better time than the present uh, to be able to uh, build up those, those stocks. Is that a relatively easy move you think that, that DOD could take? What would that require? Yeah, building up munition stockpiles is relatively easy because uh, you know they're you, you can you can buy them in variable quantities, right? So you can you can just increase the number of munitions that you produce, uh, add a shift uh, to to a factory, for example, and uh, you know it's not the type of uh, of, of commodity that expires uh, in a couple of years. So you're you're uh, you're you're saving up for a rainy day. One of the pieces you address in your article is, is divestitures. Part of the military's plans have been divesting some older systems to, to put money into newer things. What steps do you think they should take there? Yeah, I think divestitures are important, but I think we need to be selective about them. So it, it, it clearly makes sense uh, to divest older systems, whether it's aircraft, ships, past, past a certain age. 
you just wind up paying a lot more to maintain uh, to maintain the the platform uh, than acquiring a new one. So I think we we do need to divest. But in a number of cases, uh, the services are trying to divest relatively new platforms, uh, such as unmanned aerial systems. And there, I don't know that a divestiture makes a lot of sense. And instead, I think it makes sense there to try to figure out uh, ways to get the most value out of the capabilities that we've already acquired. How do you think that the military can, can act to, to do that, to make sure that, that not divesting is a, is a smart choice? Well, in the case of uh, unmanned aerial systems, like I, I just mentioned, like the, uh, uh, the Global Hawk and the, the Reaper, uh, I think they have uh, a lot of value as ISR assets for uh, operating in, in areas such as uh, the Western Pacific, Eastern Europe, to try to deter gray zone aggression. So rather than uh, divesting, divesting them, retiring them, we can find better uses for those, for those capabilities that still have a lot of life left in them. One of the other areas you address is innovation, which has been a real focus area for, for DOD. Uh, what do you recommend there? Yeah, I think that the Defense Department needs to get a, give a lot of attention to how to keep smaller, innovative companies, whether defense companies or companies that coming from Silicon Valley that are dealing with the Defense Department, keep them in the game uh, in tough economic circumstances. So for, for some of these, you know, some of these companies, they're, they're startups, they're smaller companies. Uh, they really need the support to, to weather difficult times because what they offer really are, uh, are cutting edge capabilities. In other cases, you have uh, companies whose main line of work is civilian and you know uh, we need to keep them working with the Defense Department so that the DOD and the government can continue to reap the benefits uh, of their expertise and their innovations. But I think that, that's gonna take some dedicated effort uh, by DOD going forward. It seems like it will pose a particular challenge trying to um, kind of s keep these companies that have a lot of commercial exposure um, engaged and in business. H how can DOD assist with that when obviously they're not the only customer? Yeah, well, I think whatever they can do to ease the, ease the burden, the contracting burden, anything that they can do to uh, increase the, the flow of payments would be, you know, would be, uh, uh, would be a wise investment in in our future, because uh, I think these companies have a lot to offer, but they kind of need to weather the the short term to be able to offer those solutions in the in the mid and far term. How, how do you assess DoD's response so far? Obviously, they have taken some steps to address um, you know the outbreak and and its impact on companies. What do you think of what they what they have done to to date? I think overall to date the the response has been good. Uh, increasing uh, the rate of, uh, of payments, trying to get increased flexibility of, of contracts, I think is welcome. They need to keep that up, again, particularly with, uh, you know, with flexibility. Uh, you know, some, some companies have had to slow down their operations. Others are, are continuing the, uh, you know, the pace of their operations. And I think uh, DOD needs to acknowledge those, you know, those, those circumstances and needs to, to build in the incentives to keep moving forward, keep production going, keep research and development going in these challenging times. With just about 30 seconds to go, do you view your recommendations as more um, near term and then there'll be need to be a longer term assessment of, of what to do about defense budgets or, or is it more uh, long term than that and what you suggested? 
Well, I think the, the, the guidelines that I offer are, are kind of good advice over the long term, but I, my primary focus is just on, on the near term, getting us through this, this, uh, you know, this, this period. And then we're going to have to reassess. We're going to re have to reassess our priorities. We're going to have to reassess uh, you know, the resources that are available and make sure we've got a good match between our, our policy, our strategy, and our resources. Thanks so much for being here. Always a pleasure. Up next, the public health supply chain and how it can be improved. Straight ahead on Government Matters, ways the U.S. can reduce its dependency on China for the medical supplies it needs. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. global shortage of personal protective equipment has made people more aware of difficulties in the public health supply chain. The United States relies on China for a lot of its antibiotics and other supplies. Jerry McGinn is executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. He's former principal deputy director of the Office of Manufacturing and Industrial-Based Policy at the Department of Defense. Jerry, thanks very much for coming on. What are the similarities that you see and what we're learning about our supply chain for public health items and what you learned when you undertook the same thing for the defense industrial based supply chain when you were inside DOD? Yeah, hi, Fred. It's great to see you. Yeah, it's, there are some a lot of similarities. You know, there's, you know, a lot of this is just the, 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 the global nature of the economic system. A lot, you know, with just in time manufacturing and with uh, supply chain optimization, a lot of Kind of parts of the supply chain, both in defense and in um, the public health area, have sort of migrated either offshore to lower cost providers and so on. So what that does is sort of weak, you know it builds fragility into the supply chain, um, and it's really come uh, that's really been clear in this uh, public health um, uh, pandemic. You have a great piece about this in Business Insider, Jerry, and you're right in that piece. Dependent relationships for non with non-transparent economies and undemocratic countries like China for these types of products are extremely problematic. Is it just the obvious reasons that create those problems? Is it just the fact that we don't have transparency into how these countries do business? Or are there other things that underlie the, the issues that cause these problems? Well, I mean, the uh, the fruit of those of having an, a non-transparent and, and undemocratic system is that it's not a reliable um, supply chain partner for in in crisis situations. You know, there have been situations where in this pandemic, where China was, you know, re-exporting uh, um, uh, PPE that they had sent to to Italy that had been sent back as defective. Uh, and we just can't have in uh, for these areas in public health and in and in um, some of the very lower tiers on the defense supply chain. You can't be reliant on um, a unstable or uh, unsecure supply chain because China actually threatened to uh, withhold uh, PPE um, early on in this pandemic, um, as they did back in 2010 with regard to rare earth elements, which were on the defense supply chain. So having deal with you know, so you got to be very careful. This is not about building only everything in America, but you've got to have trust in, in your supply chain and your partners that um, um, uh, in that effort. It strikes me that the challenge here, Jerry, is that not just the United States, but pretty much every Western country 
decided, the, the business leaders in those countries decided in the 90s and early 2000s that it made more sense to manufacture this stuff in China than it did to manufacture it yeah. within the borders of the individual countries. And you yeah. write in, in this piece in Business Insider about some of the resources in the CARES Act to try to change that dynamic. What's in there that gives you hope that this dynamic will change moving forward? Yeah, that, that's um, that's a really important point because what the CARES Act did is it it really gave more tools and resources to address some of these concerns. Um, as I mentioned earlier, in the in the case of rare earths, um, it, it, we discovered you know in our industrial based study for the White House back in 2017, 2018 that um, there were, we were still sourced to, in certain critical areas, one of them being rare earths, um, to China. And so we had no capability domestically to produce those. Um, this was known, but it just it was a galvanizing impact. And we were able to use the Defense Production Act, Title III, to fund um, a number of um, projects that are underway right now. Some of them are in competition to build rare earth capacity, re rebuild rare earth capacity. And what the CARES Act did is it put $1 billion into the, the, the Defense Production Act fund or the DPA fund. We've never seen that kind of amount. And that, that money is all targeted for um, rebuilding selective parts of the healthcare, the PPE and ventilator supply chain uh, here domestically. Not going to build all parts, but we the key is to identify the critical vulnerabilities where we're in a, a really precarious situation, you know, like a sole source situation with Chinese providers and building some um, industrial capacity to address that. What do you think? And Title III is a perfect tool. Sorry to interrupt, Jerry. What do you think changes that dynamic permanently? What prevents us from getting through this crisis and going, okay, we're we're okay now? and we can go back to business the way that it was before the crisis so that the next time this happens, we don't have to do this same thing all over again. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a, it's a great point, um, but I, I think we have sort of learned our lesson and I think there's, um, there's a real rethinking that has to be done in our relationship with China in some of these strategic areas. We have a 40 year plus business relationship uh, that is not going to um, end, but it's going to be altered. I mean, we've already seen this in sort of with foreign investment in some areas where Chinese industrial policy uh, has led to putting us in precarious or them having dominant positions that impact um, our, you know, the global marketplace. And countries have already started moving out of that, moving away from that, and this is going to accelerate that, not in all areas, but where we define kind of critical national security um, capabilities. Jerry McGinn, thanks as always. It's great to see you, my friend. Really great to see you, Francis. Up next, an update on the Defense Department's newest university during the coronavirus crisis. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the Defense Security Cooperation University is training DOD employees on building coalitions. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. The Defense Department's newest university just started up in January and aims to train Pentagon employees to build coalitions around the world. The Defense Security Cooperation University wants to certify the entire security cooperation workforce by 2022. Cara Abercrombie is president of the Defense Security Cooperation University. Thank you for joining me. 
Thanks for having me. Universities across the country have had to shut their doors as a result of the coronavirus outbreak. How have you all adjusted? Well, we are no different. Certainly the pandemic has disrupted standard operations, but we feel extremely fortunate. Our talented faculty have rapidly accelerated our online course development, and we've tripled the number of courses presently available to the workforce uh, without missing a beat. So you've been doing distance learning with, with all of your students? We have had to cancel a number of the planned in-residence courses. Uh, and for those that were intended for foreign students, um, those certainly we've had to cancel because they're unable to travel. But those targeting the security cooperation workforce, some we've rapidly transitioned to uh, online, uh, virtually led, virtual instructor-led training. Others, uh, we're presently in the process of transitioning and will be ready to offer those courses beginning as early as June. And those certification courses um, will hopefully target nearly everyone who is intended to participate in, in residence courses that were otherwise scheduled. How has the transition to this, this virtual experience gone for you? You know, better than expected. Certainly this was a long-term goal. We knew we wanted to offer, um, you know, 21st century education online. Uh, and it was something that we were toying with um, in a hybrid way. We were offering some instructor-led web-based training that preceded in-residence um, courses. So we've just rapidly had to reconfigure it. And we know you can't just sort of quickly transition what was intended for the classroom onto the web. So we're doing a little bit of retooling. Um, we're learning as we go. But I will say the students have been extremely appreciative that we're doing this and we're responding this quickly. And they've been understanding. You know, they're, they're learning with us. And, and uh, I honestly think we'll come out of the pandemic better prepared to meet the educational you know, requirements of the 21st century. You set a, a pretty ambitious goal to get uh, everyone in the defense cooperation workforce at least basic certification by 2022. How does that timeline look now? Rem remarkably, uh, we are 100% on track. I would say, if anything, the fact of the pandemic has actually accelerated the number of students uh, registering to take our online courses. Um, the basic course was always intended to be 100% online. Uh, and about 55% of the workforce only requires that basic level of training. To date, um, we have nearly 1,000 students out of about 18,500 have, excuse me, members of the workforce, not just students, but have already completed their basic certification coursework. So we are well, well on our way to meeting that target goal. Last time you were on the show, you, you set another target goal, um, or you shared it with us, that you wanted certification to become mandatory for some people uh, by January of next year. Is that goal also on track? It is. Yeah, when we designed the program, we built in 2020 as our transition year. And in hindsight, that was very prescient. It's given us some time to retool. Um, but to what we're, work, what we're doing now is we are working with various components across the Defense Department who are engaged in security cooperation. Uh, we, have, we were intending to have an in-person uh, summit conference, if you will, to talk about how we build this in as a requirement of your position um, through written print position descriptions, through um, our coding, our billet coding in the defense manpower systems. We had to quickly retool that meeting to virtual. We successfully a virtual 
working with dozens and dozens of representatives from Defense Department offices around the world. Uh, and they now know what they need to do to code those positions and make this a requirement for their workforce starting in January of 2021. It does seem like outreach is a key part of this first uh, year. It sounds like you're still able to do that virtually. Are there other things you need to do to get to the right people for this? We fortunately had built up our list of stakeholders. We, we knew our community going into this and it's been, I will say also, we, we work for the Defense Security Cooperation Agency that had been quite visionary in building sort of a mobile workforce, if you will. We were all already equipped with all of the technology, tablets, et cetera, to work remotely from home. And so we were well positioned to move into telework status and that's enabled us to maintain communications um, with Defense Department representatives around the world. Just about a minute to go, what has been the response um, as, you, as you've reached these stakeholders through this, this summit and other ways? Um, what have you heard back from them? Again, this community really welcomed the certification program. It was recognized as something that we need to train our workforce, but also to standardize um, expectations and norms across the community. So they've been very positive uh, in terms of receiving the program. And again, nothing but appreciative for the fact that we've enabled them to take advantage of courses while they're teleworking. Um, there's just a tremendous outpouring of appreciation. And candidly, I'm even seeing um, leaders in the community, including a two-star admiral, completing their training to get certified. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Appreciate it, Cara. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.